The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Jeremy Gilbert. With the prospect of another potential Labour by-election loss in Batley and Spen next month, we chatted about the prospect of the Labour Party facing further erosion in its support and whether the Keir Starmer project is even about winning elections or if in fact the goal is simply to defeat and marginalise the Labour left. If you'd like to hear the extended 70-minute version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, Finding a Home in the Ruins of Modernism by Owen Hatherley. From the grandiose histories of monumental state-building projects to the minutiae of street signs and corner cafes, from the rebuilding of capital cities to the provision of the humble public toilet, Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, a new collection of Owen Hatherley's writing, argues for the city as a socialist project. Spanning the period from immediately before the 2008 financial crash to the year of the pandemic, Hatherley outlines a vision of the city as both a venue for political debate and dispute, as well as a space of everyday experience, one that we shape as much as it shapes us. The book is out now from Verso Books and part of their June book club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso book club membership. Jeremy Gilbert is Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London. He's the editor of the journal New Formations and his most recent book is 21st Century Socialism. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New Statesman, Open Democracy and many other venues. He's also the co-host of the ACFM show on Navarra Media and of the excellent new podcast, Love is the Message, Music, Dance and Counterculture. On May 22nd, there was that YouGov poll which put Labour on 28 points and the Conservatives way ahead on 46. Keir Starmer's latest approval ratings are worse at a comparable stage for Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader, which is obviously pretty remarkable given the much more charitable treatment Starmer gets from the UK media. Commenting on the on the YouGov polling, Ian Leslie, centrist journalist you may know of and also a, a corporate advisor, he was making the argument that Starmer's position is akin to a commodity being at the bottom of the market and that there are a number of reasons that his position is actually very recoverable and, and may improve dramatically. Amongst those, I mean, he said that Starmer is prime ministerial in a way that the last two Labour leaders were not. He didn't really go into what he meant by that. He also pointed out that Starmer has been leading the Labour Party in in the pretty extraordinary circumstances of the of the pandemic. So what do you make of those arguments? And, and do you see 28% as the floor for Labour? Or do you think things can actually get much worse? Well, you know, it has to be acknowledged that we are living in extraordinary times. And 
we don't know what the kind of really what the political implications are of the pandemic and the fact that the government is perceived rightly or wrongly to have, have sort of done an okay job at muddling through because nothing has caused this much disruption in peacetime like since the onset of mass suffrage so we just don't know it might be it might be as the kind of you know starmer true believers would say that that no Labour leader at this stage under these circumstances could be doing any better and that until normal politics resumes then we can't really make any judgments. But if that's all we're going to say, if you're just going to believe that, well, I think firstly, I don't think anyone in their right mind can believe that if Corbyn was leader of the party getting those poll ratings or anyone from the left, they would be taking that line. So we have to just part that as a possibility. I mean, I do accept it as a real possibility, but for the sake of an ongoing analysis, we have to park it. And we also have to be very clear. There's zero chance, like zero, that they would be extending that kind of generosity to a left-wing Labour leader under these circumstances. And that clearly does in- involve a degree of special pleading on their part. I mean, the, the, the argument you've just made is just a classic example. That's a textbook definition of special pleading. I mean, the idea that, for example, Starmer's prime ministerial qualities means that sooner or later people are going to are going to start supporting him is just kind of laughable. Because what do you think is typically meant by that? Well, it means well, we know what it means. We means it looks like there's a particular sort of mainstream concept of what a, a prime minister should be like, which is really expressive of the kind of ideological preferences, a sort of aesthetic expression of the ideological preferences of the managerial class. And what they mean is a prime minister should look like somebody who's already, I mean, by prime ministerial, they mean looking like you already belong to the sort of upper echelons of Britain's managerial, corporate and political elite, which, of course, Starmer does. But what's completely absurd is their inability, those commentators' inability to grasp the fact that that clearly isn't what the British public wants or almost any public around the world at the present moment in time wants from their political leaders. You know, we've been living through a a very widely documented global populist wave, which involves people rejecting the authority and the moral authority of the established political elite. And so to say that, well, Starmer, you know, it's an asset, to assume that it's an asset for Starmer, that he looks like he he is one of them. When he's up against Johnson, who on those terms is like, is the least prime ministerial figure in modern British history, then it's just, and he's doing really well, and he's really popular. I mean, to me, it's just indicative of the extent to which the people making those kinds of claims, they're not even trying really to formulate an analysis which responds in any way to the actual specifics of the current situation. They're just trotting out a set of cliches, a set of political, discursive, ideological reflexes, which are the ones that they formulated, you know, when they were growing up, you know, the ones that were really sort of formulated from the late 80s into the 90s. And that they just haven't made any attempt to revise and that they don't seem to be physically capable of revising, like despite the fact that they evidently just don't apply in any meaningful way to you know, current historical circumstances. I mean, they would presumably point to the election of Joe Biden, who in the US political system is as mainstream as they come in some respects. Yeah, but Biden, is, he's an establishment figure. But like, I was in the States during the, the Democratic nomination debates in 2020. And I was, I was there, you know, around my friend's house, with a bunch of other Bernie supporters watching the debate, the, the debate which everybody now remembers is the one in which Biden suddenly appeared to be not senile 
And, you know, the following, you know, it was on the weekend and on the Tuesday, Biden kind of swept the board in, in Carolina and it was over for Bernie. And watching Biden in that debate at that moment, I just thought he's obviously going to win this. And it's because Biden doesn't, he doesn't come across to his public as a member of the political establishment. That's the point. It doesn't matter that he is. He has that kind of folksiness to him. Yeah, exactly. He comes across as this kind of folksy, you know, blue collar guy who can get away with saying things like, I'm a union guy. You know, if you want a sort of equivalent in Britain, I mean, the person who could have become a British Biden if he wanted to, if he hadn't completely misplayed his hand, would have been, say, Tom Watson who similarly is capable of coming across, despite having been an absolute, like the absolute archetype of a, a machine politician since his student days, is capable of sort of coming across to people just because of his accent and his bearing and because the fact that he doesn't have, you know, like film star looks and, a, you know, an expensive haircut. You know, he is capable of coming across as a sort of, you know, salt of the earth, man of the people type, which clearly Starmer isn't. And that's the appeal of Johnson as well. You know, Johnson, he appears to have this kind of relatable quality, despite the fact he went to Eton, despite the fact that it's clear from his accent that he went to Eton. And so I think it's absolutely clear, I'm afraid, from all the commentary I've seen, that the sort of, not just sort of centrists, the sort of right wing of the Labour Party, but also like much of the soft left, they don't grasp this about Biden. They don't understand Biden's like populist appeal and the populist dimension of his appeal. They don't get it at all because, because I think it doesn't read to, to British audiences. At least I don't know. This is something that they just see him as as Obama's guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think so. It's difficult for me to parse because you know I you know, I lived in the states for a couple of years as a kid. You know, and I so I guess I have yeah I, I spent a bit of my life around kind of blue collar Americans and I have a sense of what they will relate to. So maybe like British middle class commentators, you know, haven't had that experience and don't get it. But I, maybe that's why I don't know why why else it would be. But to me, it's like just self evident that Biden doesn't present in that way, and that's really crucial to. And, and that what distinguishes him from Hillary Clinton, perhaps? Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. He's, he's completely doesn't come across anything like Hillary Clinton. So yeah, I mean, Starmer doesn't have any of that quality. It has to be said, I mean, the contest between Bernie and uh, Biden was a contest between two figures who both had that quality. And the Labour leadership contest didn't include anyone who really had that quality. I mean, I don't think, I, despite, I don't think Rebecca Long Bailey really has it. I think, you know, she, the certain audiences she connected with well, but to most people, she comes across as a, as a provincial solicitor, you know, she doesn't come across as a sort of woman of the people. I, d I think we're fairly short of people, really, of political figures in this country who do seem to have that, that sort of a popular appeal, you know, who can give a really good speech, but who, who, can, who can appear to be, at least on the left we are, in the Labour Party we are. And, and I mean, the, the Tories are not, don't have loads of them either, but they've got Johnson, who's sort of, that's his, one of his really great strengths. I mean, there's been, you know, a fair degree of love being shown towards Andy Burnham, which I'm a little bit cynical about myself. But what do you think? Well, yeah, well, clearly Burnham ha does have that quality to a certain extent, and, and he's cultivated it very cleverly. He's very, he's really, I mean, if you look at the way Burnham has developed his image, it's been very clever. I mean, when Burnham was first stood for the Labour leadership in the election that was eventually won by Ed Miliband in 2010, I actually thought the content of what he, a lot of what he said was quite impressive. I mean, even then, he was using this phrase progressive universalism, and he was arguing for a return to sort of classical social democracy, and he was arguing for the, the National Care Service, for example. So uh, the content was quite impressive, I thought, but nobody took him seriously because he, he wore these sort of blue 
I, I don't know if he, I always imagined him in a blue blazer, but I don't know if that's just my imagination. Cause I, I used to say at the time that he always came across like he was being played by Steve Coogan, <laughs> you know, so like, you know, he's always came across as kind of oily and just the way he, he's completely kind of reinvented his image. Like he never wears a tie. He wears a sort of, you know, yeah, he wears sort of anorak and glasses. He's really done well at, at promoting that, cultivating that kind of image. And I think, you know, you can't be too, um, we do need political leaders sometimes who are just cynical opportunists, but are willing, are willing, unable to adapt to a conjuncture when there's an opportunity to, to push things a bit to the left. Like, I think it's really, so I don't, I wouldn't sort of, I mean, I really wouldn't rule out Burnham for that reason. I realised I, I didn't answer the question about whether this is Labour's, 28 is as low as Labour can go. I mean, I think, I mean, probably, I mean, in all seriousness, it's, I do, I think it probably is, to be honest. I mean, probably because... It, because first past the post? Yeah, because first past the post and just because like, that has been Labour's 28%, around 28%, 26, 27, 28 has been kind of the floor for Labour ever since the emergence of the SDP Liberal, the SDP in, in the early 80s. Hasn't really gone below that for very long. There were all those crazy polls, like exactly two years ago, that people have been retweeting just to remind us how crazy they were. After the European elections in 2019, that had the Lib Dems in the lead, like as the National Party, and had Labour on sort of 19%. I mean, there's a question around the Green Party. There's a question as to whether the Green Party is capable of finally fulfilling, you know, what many have have at various times seen as its historic destiny as, as becoming the sort of permanent repository for the the urban the, the metropolitan left vote and if it could do that then yeah then labor could see its vote its vote share fall you know below 20 percent. that would be full-scale you know pasokification as it's called you know the phrase the phrase you know referring to what first happened to the socialist party in greece but it happened to lots of other socialist and social democratic parties around europe that they've just their vote collapsed as they got as their constituency was divided between a conservative authoritarian constituency that went over to vote for far right parties and a, a metropolitan sort of middle class left constituency that went towards green and, and new left parties so that could happen it's pretty unlikely because the British Green Party has been wasting historic opportunities for the past 30 years and it doesn't look in, in any way capable of taking advantage of this one to me. So it's very unlikely that the Green Party will succeed in getting itself into the position of being enough of a threat to actually for that to happen. And, and you know, you've always got to remember, and you know, you've heard me say this like dozens of times, and the reason why in some ways Corbynism was less of a surprise to some people than to others. And it's just that there's about a quarter of the British electorate who are actual socialists. They're proper ideological socialists. They might not use that terminology, but you ask them their opinions on any issue. You know, they have a socialist, a kind of libertarian, kind of Marxist-oriented critique of the nature of historical change and the kind of policy programme they would ideally like to see implemented. So those people have got to go somewhere. And ultimately, they won't vote for the Tories. They won't vote for the Liberal Democrats unless they completely reinvent themselves. And if the Green Party can't persuade them to vote for them, which at the moment, despite the Green Party vote inevitably going up, which it will continue to do uh, fairly significantly, I don't think there doesn't seem to be any real chance of like that vote being taken away from Labour, except outside Scotland. Just going back to Starmer, how would you describe his politics at this point, or maybe not even his politics, but the way he's been running the party and the limited sense we have of the policies and the way it ran 
the uh, election campaign in, in Hartlepool and the local elections. Where do you sort of see it in terms of the range of politics within the Labour Party? Well, I mean, it seems to be being driven. I mean, the entire project seems to be not about winning elections. You know, the entire project seems to be still just about attacking and demoralising the left, sort of pushing the left out of the party and demoralising the left within the party so that the, the position of MPs with safe seats, councillors with safe seats and bureaucrats like just isn't, is never troubled by a kind of left-wing insurgency such as Corbynism represented again. As far as we can tell from the way they've done things like try to wrap themselves in the Union Jack and spend a lot of time attacking Corbyn, the electoral logic of their strategy seems to be, okay, well, under first past the post, the only thing that matters is, is persuading Tories to vote Labour. It doesn't really matter if you get like Liberal Democrats to vote Labour or Green voters to vote Labour. It doesn't matter if you please existing Labour voters at all. The only thing that really matters is persuading Conservative vote, current Conservative voters to vote Labour. And in particular, they want to go out after the kind of voters who they are describing as working class voters in Red Wall constituencies who have switched votes from Labour to Tory over the past few years. But of course, as we know, in most cases, the voters they're describing are retirees with 100% paid off mortgages and ever inflating asset wealth and pensions, which are widely regarded as untouchable sort of politically. And so they're not in any they're not in any meaningful sense working. They're only working class in a, in a cultural sense. They're not working class in a material sense. They they are not workers. They are not dependent upon the value of their labour for their incomes. They're dependent on the value of assets and you know on on the stock market. You know funding their pensions. But that's not how Starmer and his close advisors conceptualise the situation. They conceptualise those voters as working class. They conceptualise them as the target voters. They have to try to win back for labour, and they assume that they the way to do that is essentially through giving off a set of cultural signals that indicates that they share the the socially conservative and nationalistic outlook which they assume those voters to have and they have also sort of been convinced or have convinced themselves that one of the things you have to do in order to give off those signals is you have to visibly distance yourself very very violently from the legacy of the Corbyn years so not restoring the whip to Corbyn in parliament adopting a rhetoric which is you know completely sort of contrary to sort of Corbynite rhetoric using all this imperialist imagery which Corbyn wouldn't have gone within 100 miles of what they think they're doing is detoxifying the Labour brand which got toxified with these voters by Corbyn and his supporters. That's what they think they're doing. You know, obviously, it's a completely flawed analysis from beginning to end, because firstly, it doesn't understand why it is that those voters have stopped voting Labour. It thinks they've stopped voting Labour because they didn't like the left-wing politics and the anti-imperialist politics of Corbyn. It's true that they didn't, but that isn't why they stopped voting Labour. They stopped voting Labour because the Tory party is completely aligned with their material interest and has made it very clear that it's committed to defending their material interests as pensioners and property owners, come hell or high water. So, And that, that's why they're voting Tory. So if you have a wrong analysis, though, if you've fooled yourself that the reason those people are voting Tory is not because they are now people who depend for their incomes on assets and stock market prices. And people in that position, no matter what jobs they might have done in a previous life, have always voted Tory for the whole past 100 years. If you convinced yourself that's not the case, then instead it's the case that, oh, well, they stopped voting. They didn't like Corbyn because they saw him as negative about the British Empire. 
and that therefore then you're going to convince yourself understandably that you can win back those voters by stopping looking like someone who doesn't like the British Empire. But it's obviously not working and it's not going, I mean, on these terms, it's not, I mean, it's just not going to work. The only reason that way that could start to work was if something happened that convinced those sets of voters that the Tories were not ultimately going to keep acting in their interests. And so other factors, for instance, what we saw today with Dominic Cummings' evidence at the Select Committee in Parliament, you don't think some evidence of a, of a catastrophic failure in some other form of governance could cause them to flip? I don't think, the, you know, floating vote, I don't think many voters are paying any attention to the Cummings. If they are brought to their attention in the right way by the Daily Mail and the Sun, then yeah, it will happen. But the Daily Mail and the Sun, they might decide to throw Boris Johnson off a cliff along with Dominic Cummings, but they'll only they'll just replace him with someone at least as bad. You know, there's no chance. But they're not going to they're not going to decide to hand it to Starmer. I mean, on some level, I'm sure there are some people involved in formulating Labour strategy who know that, and, and they will be people who studied the history of New Labour and who do understand kind of explicitly or implicitly that basically New Labour got were allowed to govern because they had convinced, they had managed to convince you know sections of the capitalist class that they no longer posed any kind of political threat to them at all or any kind of material threat. And so they were allowed to do it because everybody was sick of the Tories. They'd sort of exhausted themselves. So they therefore assumed that really the real audience for all of this performance they're engaged in at the moment isn't even the voters. It's really those sections of the capitalist class who they are hoping will eventually decide that no, Labour now poses no threat to them, so they'll let them have a turn and they'll let them and they'll stop attacking them in the newspapers and they might even one or two of the newspapers might recommend voting for them and i think that's a a fairly reasonable assessment from their point of view of the situation but again i think that the problem with that analysis you know implicit or explicit is that it you know it overlooks the extent to which the political establishment got a real fright from the labor party in 2017 such that I just don't think, you know, if, if you're relying on, on, on getting to a situation like 1995 to 97, where, you know, the corporate establishment has become convinced that the Tories are completely incompetent and that the Labour leadership pose no threat to them at all. If you're relying on that, you're going to be waiting at least another sort of six, seven years before there's any chance. And you're going to have to have Labour be as right wing as it is at the moment throughout that time. And a, and a smaller membership, probably. Yeah, no, yeah. You're going to have to re, you're going to have to persuade the NEC, for example, including the union leaderships, to let you change the rules again to make sure the Labour, the membership can't ever again elect a left wing leader. That's all a very big task. But then I think all of this, everything I'm saying, is still sort of predicated on the assumption on some level that what these people are thinking about what uh, is a strategy for winning elections. And I, I just don't think it is, really. I don't think the whole project of Starmerism, I think, just isn't oriented towards Labour winning. It's oriented towards stabilising Labour's position as a permanent opposition and stabilising the position of the right-wing factions of the Labour Party as the only beneficiaries of the existence of this permanent opposition. Do you think that's what they perceive that they're doing, or that's not the story they tell themselves, but that's what they are doing? No, the story they tell themselves is you, this is the only way you'll ever get a Labour government. The only way you can't get a Labour government. And you listen to how some of them talk, it is almost sort of magical thinking. They think there's a, there's a sort of magical causal relationship between attacking the left and winning elections. And they do. I mean, you've got to understand none of these people are very bright, like not a single one of them. Even There's people like Mandelson who have a sort of genius, but Mandelson is clearly just out of his mind on some level now. I just, you know, those people like Mandelson, I just think, you know, they're, 
you know, this was all dramatised very well in, in the thick of it and in the kind of denouement of that, that great British satirical show, you know, that these people at Mams, they end up just sort of dead inside, I think, and just, you know, kind of crazy and just eaten up by guilt and angst and, and the, the fanatical need to keep telling themselves a story in which they're not the villains. When it's very, I mean, no one in their right minds thinks that historians are going to look back in 50 years and think like, oh, Alex de Campbell, Tony Blair and Peter Manson were the good guys. But I think, I mean, this is pure speculation on my part, but I just think if, you, if you're a human being who finds yourself in that position, where you just know, like largely because you just followed lines of least resistance during parts of your career when things were not much under your control anyway, you find yourself in the position of knowing on some level that you're you're going to be recorded as one of history's villains. Like it must just try, it just it must just kind of make you crazy. Like you either go through some kind of spiritual crisis and you know go go enter a monastery or something, or you just kind of turn into this gibbering fanatic who like just can't keeps re- us making assertions, which would only make sense in a universe in which you're not one of the villains. And I think that is the case. I mean, that's the case for people like Mandelson and Blair. Do you think that Mandelson views Starmer as a a placeholder, as a step on the way to a more full-throated Blairite leadership? Presumably, yeah, but I don't think like he... Was that not even necessary at this point? I just, I don't think he has a grand plan of that nature. I mean, I I wouldn't know if he does anyway. I couldn't presume to know what's going on. I can make speculations about his general kind of psychological and affective state, but in terms of what's actually going on intellectually in his brain, I've got no idea. But I mean, it's pretty clear after the by-election result in Hartlepool that even people like Mandelson think that Starmer isn't really don't it doesn't seem to be delivering very well. It's, I mean, the trouble is, it's not clear who they think would, and and I just don't think they really have a plan because it's also there's no evidence, there's no reason to think that if like it was Rachel Reeves or Yvette Cooper like doing that job, then they'd be doing any better. I mean, in terms of winning. But again, I just don't think, as you said, I mean, you said, is it necessary? No, I think, I don't think it is necessary. I don't think he needs to be a placeholder because I think their only project is driving the left out of the party. Mm. And he's happy to go along. Yeah. For people who are still sort of in the Labour Party by the skin of their teeth, what would you say to them in terms of the direction of the Labour Party? I mean, what would you advise? Do you think people should be spending a lot of time being active in their local CLPs or do you think people should be throwing their energy elsewhere and do you think there is a possibility for a left revival within within the party? Well there's definitely I mean in terms of where people should spend their energy that's only something I can make a judgment about locally and it partly depends on what kind of people's predilections are. I mean my own relationship to that is I mean I've never spent a lot of time on kind of internal Labour Party work to be honest but then I you know I live in a constituency with a right-wing MP and you know anyone in a constituency with a Labour MP you're very unlikely to be able to do much because they have you know they they use the MP's office and they use kind of privileged access to sort of members list and stuff to just you know, stitch up the left on a routine basis. But you've got to remember that that's like about 20% of constituencies have a Labour MP. People who don't have a right-wing MP, you know, sort of dominating their constituency party. I think it just really depends on the local conditions, like whether whether the party is a potentially useful vehicle or, or not. And people will have to make their judgments there. In terms of whether there's a scope for a sort of revival of the left in the party, yeah, I think, I mean, there's, I just, I think the thing, you know, I keep saying is that the conditions that produced Corbynism haven't changed at all. And nothing has changed in terms of the general conditions that produced it. And I think it's, um, 
Yeah, I think there's a, there's every possibility. I think there's every possibility. I, I think, you know, we're probably not going to get a candidate like Jeremy Corbyn, who is this sort of pure embodiment of a kind of ultra-moral, sort of fully anti-imperialist politics. But, you know, the fact that that's what Corbyn was is part of the problem, really, with, with Corbynism. I mean, that's partly why he personally was never pop- very popular with the public, apart from for like a few weeks in 2017, which is also why, you know, both the Labour establishment and the political right haven't felt under the same pressure that Biden's been under. I think if you're holding out for another Corbyn, then yeah, if that and if if another Corbyn is the only is the the thing that would make you happy, you know, being a member of the Labour Party, then yeah, don't bother. Uh, then yeah, don't because it's not going to happen again. So you know what happened in the states is Bernie Sanders became like for several years the the most popular politician in America. You know, he kept topping all these polls as the, as the most popular politician, and Biden absolutely knows that. And that's why Biden has felt under genuine pressure to make some serious concessions to the left, including, you know, and, and actually, he's, I mean, Biden has, he's set, has set out a programme which, if it's enacted, will actually leave the working class in America like slightly stronger than when he leaves office. Not massively stronger, no. Not on the point of socialist revolution, no. But actually slightly stronger instead of a bit weaker, which, is, which has been the result of every other presidential term since Reagan, but really since Carter. Which is significant, and but that's ultimately that's all because Bernie. I mean, it's not all because, but it's partly because Bernie managed to become really popular. I mean, Corbyn didn't, and that's because Bernie spoke a kind of vernacular language of a sort of national populist, not nationalist, but appealing to a certain sense of the nation, sort of populist and class-based critique of inequality and contemporary capitalism which you know as i've said on this show before you know corbyn was just never able to articulate you know and he was never able to articulate it partly because you know his whole frame of reference was always sort of cloyingly moral rather than really being sort of fiercely and analytically political like sanders is do you think then that the power of the tabloid press and the the media in general in the uk is, is overplayed in that sense well, I don't know. It's a really good question. I don't think so because, I mean, I don't think so. I've always thought you needed a kind of, um, I've always thought you needed a kind of robust counterweight to that and probably a kind of doorstep level explicit campaign against the right-wing press in this country. And um, But I also think we just don't know, like just as an experiment, we as an experimental piece of data, we don't know what would have happened if Corbyn had been able to, or firstly had been able to articulate his critique of the press in terms which were widely comprehensible and persuasive, like when he got the opportunity on broadcast media, which he did have, and he just didn't. I mean, whenever Jeremy was kind of invited to have anything to say at all about the media on television, he just sort of visibly shook and kind of looked, you know, and just sounded censorious. You know, he didn't say, he never once said, look, those motherfuckers, you know, of course they hate me, you know, I want to tax them. Of course they hate. Would you recommend that specific language? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I probably would, yeah. <laughs> um, I think a politician who said that would be would be popular. <laughs> yeah. um, and um and Bernie did, you know, Bernie could say that. Bernie would say frequently, but he was very was quite good at going on TV saying, Well, of course they hate me. I want to tax them, you know. <laughs> But Jeremy wouldn't say that. Jeremy would say they hate me because they're they're. He would say they're they're bad people. It's, and it's not the same statement. 
that the statement, they hate me because I want, of course they hate me and tell lies about me. I want to tax them to fund your kids' schools and your hospitals is not the same as those are bad people that tell lies. It's not the same kind of statement. And anyway, so the thing is, I think there is still every opportunity for us to get a, a Labour leader who will say something like that. And it could be Andy Burnham. And it could be it could be Angela Rayner, you know, it could be Clive Lewis. You know, I know and those are all people, people on the sort of far left of a certain section of Corbynism are not happy about the idea of being leader because they want this kind of pure figure that they that Corbyn is, to be fair. You know, he is. He does have a kind of ideological and moral purity, which none of those other figures could really lay claim to. Even arguably even sort of McDonald couldn't lay claim to. And if you're one of those people who the only the reason you want to be in the Labour Party is because it was led by Corbyn and what and your idea of what it means to be in a political party is to belong to an organization which your being in that organization is a way of expressing something about yourself to yourself and the world. And the thing you are expressing is really defined by the identity and character of the leader, then yeah, of course not. But you now, as I've said on this show before, as I've said on ACFM and, and loads of other contexts, loads of times, I think it's just a misunderstanding of the Labour Party and what it is to see it in those terms. What the Labour Party is, is not like, you know, it's an, it shouldn't be understood as an expressive organisation. It shouldn't be understood, joining the Labour Party shouldn't be a way of expressing your political identity, except to the extent that you realise that it is a necessary site of struggle. And the way, I mean, the way I like to put this, the way I put this when I was doing a talk recently, actually, which I think is really useful, is that the thing you have to understand is that the dividing line between actual progressives, you know, people who want to shift the balance of forces in our society, even a little bit in favour of those who are currently weak, and that includes kind of social democrats, it includes even sort of progressive social liberals, but it also includes you know, communists and anarchists and radical socialists. That the dividing line between all those people and the people who really don't want any of that to happen, who, although they might be willing to entertain some possibility of ameliorative reform to kind of address discrete social problems, they do not want any action taken which would actually shift the balance of forces in society even slightly. The dividing line between those two groups of people between progressives and their enemies, runs through the Labour Party. Okay, It is within the Labour Party. It's not a dividing line between the Labour Party and other groups of people and other parties. It's not a dividing line that runs to the left of the Labour Party. It's a dividing line that runs through it. And therefore, if you absent yourself from political struggle of any kind within the Labour Party, you are absenting yourself from the front line of that struggle in the political sphere. Of course, you can get involved in community politics, you can get involved in labour organising, and you can very much be on the front line of that struggle in different contexts. But in the domain of formal politics, that is where the front line of that struggle is. It is inside the Labour Party, it's within the Labour Party. I always think it's important to understand that, you know, you don't have to... You don't have to do anything to be in it. I mean, the thing that I kept seeing on Twitter last year when people were talking about leaving was, I'm leaving the Labour Party because I no longer want to spend like 15 hours a week like canvassing for and organising for an organisation whose leadership I don't believe in. And I just think, well, I mean, I really admire the dedication and activism of people who did that. But also, you can't just keep doing it. You can stop doing the 15 hours a week campaigning and still be a member of the party so that you get to vote next time. I mean, my, that's, you know, my own attitude. I've been a Labour, member of the Labour Party since 1989 or 88, and I stayed in all through the Blair years. And when people, whenever people ask me why I was still a member, I said, because I want to be able to vote against, I want to be able to vote the Blairites out when the time comes. Yeah, and the time did come. You know, we elected Ed as leader, who, for all his disappointments, was a significant figure in marking a break with New Labour and did kind of open the door to Gorbanism. And then we voted for, for Jeremy. 
And I think, you know, you've also got to keep in mind that, that leaving the party is absolutely what they want. You know, the, the whole project of the right is to make us leave. I mean, I keep saying this. I mean, the thing I, I would say, I do find it slightly frustrating that I, I know a lot of people who they don't just accept. They I see them widely repeating this analysis, you know, that the current project of the Labour leadership is not even to win an election. It's just to drive out the left, which I largely, you know, as you know, this, I, that is my analysis. And they also say, oh, oh like, that's why I'm leaving. <laughs> so I just, to me, there's something perverse about that. If you know that they're just doing it to get you to leave and you'll say, well, I'm leaving then. Well, you're just, you're doing what your enemies want. Just going back to that point about Biden and where a Biden presidency might leave the American working class, I suppose a lot of the suspicion that people will have towards an Andy Burnham or Angela Rayner, say, would perhaps be that, you know, even if they believed, which I think in many cases they, they won't, that they would implement economic policies that would you know, dramatically improve people's lives in the UK, that it would be, as in the case with, with Biden, perhaps tied to a nationalist project. And it, and it may, it appears to be the case that, that Biden is doubling down on, on the kind of new Cold War with China, even if he doesn't want to call it that. Well, I mean, that may be true, but I would say, I mean, I would say that 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 is part, I mean, one, that is a genre of criticism of left-wing and social democratic governments, which has been kind of common and re repeated for decades. But give me one example of a left-wing government of, say, the United States or the UK, which has actually managed to break with the imperialist militarist dimensions of the general project of the state of those countries. Now, there isn't one. So, I mean, and I say all of the evidence of the 20th century, sadly, is that, that if what you want is to get a government of a country, especially in a, in a, of a major imperial or post-imperial power, and you want it to actually break with its imperialist role in the wider world, then, then you, just, you need a communist revolution. Like nothing short of that can make that happen. And I think that's true. And I think that's a good reason for trying to make a communist revolution happen. It's also, but that also means that just isn't a reasonable criterion according to which to judge an actual or potential government, which is being led by, you know, the Democratic Party or the Labour Party. It's just not realistic. You're not going to get an anti-imperialist Labour or, you know, Labour or Democratic government. The best you could get I think, out of the Labour Party or the Democratic Party, if you want to push politics in a direction which would make a break with imperialism possible, is indeed a reforming programme which actually strengthens rather than weakens the working class and makes it possible you know, to keep building more militant political movements in the future. And I think that's the most you can hope for. So I just don't think it's a legitimate criticism, to be honest, even of Biden. I mean, I think it's hard to say this on the one hand, of course, you need to keep making the criticism. You do. So it's not right to say it's not a legitimate criticism. You absolutely need constantly to be pointing out to people the imperialism and the kind of the, the murderous, bloodthirsty consequences of the imperialism, which is still practiced and or endorsed and supported by governments like the British and American government. But I think really, I'm a, I realise it's a big ask, but, you know, it, it's these are the historical cards we've been dealt. You know, I think it's necessary both to maintain very publicly, very explicitly that critique and to keep putting pressure on and to keep trying to shift public opinion in an anti-imperialist direction, but also to recognise that, we'll, you know, the limitations of sort of social democratic politics within the framework of capitalism, you know, and liberal democracy are such that 
there is just no chance of getting an anti-imperialist government elected. I mean, the one way of looking at this, I mean, it's been an interesting set of debates around this recently, because, for, say, for example, some of the new left review writers have been like really kind of aggressive towards people like Owen Jones, even in the case of Tariq Ali, a bit being pretty sneery about myself and James Butler, because of our uh, support for our, our support for McDonnell, basically over Corbyn, because of our preference for McDonnell over Corbyn, and they've been really aggressive towards McDonnell, and they see John McDonnell as sort of the villain of the piece during the Corbyn years because he was too weak in standing up to the anti-Semitism smear campaign and in being willing to make concessions over things like the IHR, the Labour Party's adoption of the absolutely flawed IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. And, I mean, in terms of the politics of the anti-Semitism issue, I just don't know. Like, I wasn't there. I wasn't kind of in the room when those decisions were being made, so I don't. I just don't really know what was the right thing to have done. And I have some sympathy, actually, with their view that, you know, nothing was gained by making the concessions that were made. But on the other hand, I think what's motivating that critique of McDonnell and their kind of veneration of Corbyn, and they're fairly explicit at this, about this at times, is indeed the fact that McDonnell has more of a sort of Gramscian approach that you have to win the battle of, over for, the, for what Gramsci calls the national popular, you know, the kind of the popular mood, the general common sense within the, within the political space of the nation. And that has to be the first task of politics. And whereas Corbyn has never been interested in that, really, Corbyn's not been interested in, in really intervening at the level of the national popular. He's interested in maintaining a thoroughly principled commitment to a radical anti-imperialism. And for me, the, the problem with that from a strategic perspective is that, from my point of view, anti-imperialism and a kind of radical socialist internationalism is the highest stage of class consciousness it's the highest level of class consciousness it's the thing you have to you want to try to get people there you want to try to get your supporters your voters the public to that kind of level of critical anti-capitalist consciousness but that is the most advanced stage and if they're not even at the level where they can accept that like free broadband might be politically feasible then there's you can't get them if they're not at that level yet. You can't get them to the level of accepting, you know, a full scale critique of imperialism and their own country's complicity with it. You just can't. It just doesn't work that way. So although that kind of an anti a radical anti imperialist critique, you know, it has to be the end point to which we're trying to bring our politics and to which we're trying to bring the consciousness, you know, large sections of the public. It can't be the starting point. Because if you if you make it the starting point, then you're starting from a position which is already just you know completely distant from where most of the people are, and you won't be able to bring them with you. Now, I think on the one hand, you can recognise all that on an abstract level, and and still, I think it's you know, but still, you have to also keep pushing. None of that is an excuse for not criticising imperialism and imperialist violence and racism whenever it appears. So I think we're in a really complicated strategic situation. You know, we have to accept that we're probably not going to be able to get even a weekly social democratic government if we insist on only having like Labour leaders who are going to embrace full-throated anti-imperialism and anti-militarism, despite the fact that it's also, it is a moral imperative to keep advocating for those positions. And I think, yeah, this does all get really complicated. And I think, you know, it's not like even even I, you know, have limits to how far I can just be sort of completely strategically calculating on some of these issues. I mean, I really, I think on an issue like immigration, you know, personally, I think we just, we clearly have lost the argument on immigration. We've decisively lost it. 
you know, it's, it doesn't look like we're ever, there's, there's really is no chance of kind of getting a Labour government anytime soon on the back, you know, with a, while arguing for a, a progressive position on immigration, maybe with a progressive alliance, actually, maybe you can do that. Maybe there's enough people you could get behind it. And there's enough people who don't really care one way or another about immigration. But it might be that we've just lost that argument. And it might be that the strategically sensible thing to do would be to do what, you know, the Danish Social Democrats did and just accept a kind of the, that they've lost the argument on immigration and, you know, and get elected and do a load of stuff that at the economic level is progressive. It might be, but, but I personally, I just can't, you know, I can't, it's just not in me physically to be able to advocate for or endorse a position which isn't, you know, more or less a kind of open borders position. I mean, and that's just, it's just been my own personal experiences and my own kind of intellectual and philosophical formation is such that it's just, it's too visceral. You know, my my sort of detestation of, you know, xenophobia is just too visceral for me to accept any sort of concessions to it, no matter what the strategic necessity. So I'm only making, giving that as an example, but, you know, it's not like, you know, it's easy to sort of preach at people and say, well, you have to accept this limitation and that limitation and this condition and that condition. But, you know, there's limits to what any of us can accept. And and I think, you know, political action and political strategizing is always about trying to balance, you know, find a balance between what, what you can personally sort of bring yourself to live with and what is, you know, politically feasible or necessary in a given moment. On the question of where the public is at, so there was a recent interview with John Crudus, the Dagenham Labour MP, in which he was criticising the what he perceives as the metropolitan left and its advocacy of things like universal basic income and the more radical strands which are excited by the prospects of automation and how this could you know free up time for people and so on. And he was saying that all the evidence suggests that people want decent, purposeful work to carry out. It's central to their sense of identity, their sense of community. Do you think he has a point in the sense that it can often feel that talk around UBI does seem quite exotic to people because a lot of people do feel, rightly or wrongly, that we live under conditions of material scarcity? I mean, you're right, but I, I don't think it's scarcity is, is the issue, really, that, that John is getting out there. He's, I mean, I don't agree with a lot of, of John's critique of of what the kind of, I mean, his critique of, of sections of the left that I think, you know, I have told him to his face more than once. I think he lumps together sets of tendencies that he shouldn't. But, you know, although I, you know, I always have a lot of respect for his, his analysis and his opinions. So I don't agree with all of it, but I think the point he's making is in some sense a more fundamental one that is a bit allied to stuff I was talking about a minute ago. And that is that, I mean, I think there's a ver- you, there's a version of what I was saying before that, that could apply in this case, which is to be just to be anti-work at all, in a certain sense, is again is a very high stage of class consciousness. It's a very high level, so, and it also depends upon being somebody who has various kinds of cultural and personal and psychological resources, such that you don't need you know, the structured activity of paid employment to give you a sense of purpose and purposefulness. And I think John is sort of pointing to the fact that, in a sense, I think it's true. I think the the journey from being sort of just a kind of bourgeois subject, you know, believing in capitalist ideology, to being a full-scale revolutionary, it might end up in a place where you just want to, you realise we want to abolish the work, when we want to abolish the working class, but, you know, because we want to abolish class society itself. But somewhere along that way, you're probably someone who says, right, I just, I don't want a bullshit job. I want a good job, you know? And uh, 
and probably where more much many more people are at in terms of the wider public are people who feel like they've got you know what david graeber sort of brilliantly called bullshit jobs and they're frustrated by that and they want a good job more on some level psychically emotionally more than they want just to not have to have any job you've been listening to politics theory other a podcast from tribune magazine If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.